Hi, my name's Samuel Finlay, and you're listening to the Aces Podcast. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Amy Jelmy, who is the Vice Chancellor's Research Fellow at RMIT. Amy studied a PhD at the University of Wollongong before moving to Sweden and then London to further her career before a move to Melbourne, where she now finds herself. We spoke about her journey in research, her current work, and much more. So let's get to the podcast conversation. So I'm chatting to Dr. Amy Jelmy on the ACES podcast today. Thanks for joining me, Amy. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's a pleasure. How are you? We were just chatting before I hit record that the restrictions have eased off slightly. You're down, based down in Melbourne. Uh, how have things this year? Has obviously been very different for you, especially for researchers. How's things? Yeah, yeah. No, it's been um, it's been a bit of a crazy year um, for sure. But things are getting back to normal. I think as of today, we're on the sixth day of zero zero. So I hope by the time people are listening, you know, maybe we've made it out two weeks without any community transmission. <laughs> that would be amazing. But yeah, this year's just been kind of weird because it's just a lot more focus on supporting my research students and trying to keep them you know excited about research and we can't even get into the lab and excited about what we're going to do so there's a lot of and a lot of uh, career development and not a lot of original research but a lot of a lot of review writing <laughs> <laughs> so when was the last time you went into the labs um so i was in the lab during stage four, um, which was a bit tricky because there were such heavy restrictions on how long you could be in for. I was only approved for two days a week. So it was more just checking in and maintaining uh, some cell cultures and helping like, one of my PhD students, like keeping him up to date and trained while we waited for more access to come up. But I think the last time I probably did an actual experiment based on my projects was probably in March. Wow. Um, I think because we, we did start a few things uh, when between the two lockdowns down in Melbourne, we did get some stuff up and running, but we didn't really get the chance to finish it. And a lot of it was just still foundation work with the stem cells because I didn't, I knew that the chance of us getting locked down again could be quite high. So it was just really minimising expensive reagent use that may not result in any good results because we did a lot of um we, did, we cultured quite a few stem cells that we we're going to do some image analysis with and they end up sitting in the fridge for a few months and it just unfortunately it's not very useful data at the end of the day by the time we get to image them so so lots of uh paper writing this year yes yeah um i was lucky enough that i actually had an invited review before the pandemic hit. So that was a good time to finish it up. So it kind of came out a bit earlier. So that was really nice. That's an advanced healthcare materials if anyone wants to check it out. Oh, great. A little plug for myself, bioresponsive, <laughs> uh, sorry, stimulus responsive biomaterials. So it was written with a, a colleague that I was at Imperial College London with. And so she's now based in Oregon and Portland. So we, we actually came up with the idea for the review on a boat trip in Corfu that we were in Greece for a friend's wedding. Oh, wow. From the lab. <laughs> so we're like, oh, we should write a review together. And then another friend, uh, she works as an editor at one of the Wiley journals. So, so she said, oh, that sounds great. You know, submit my, submit the idea and we'll put you on the list and we'll reach out if we're interested. And they did. So that's, that's how you get reviews. You just got to take a boat trip with uh, some colleagues and <laughs> journal editors. 
<laughs> some advice for PhD students now for yeah. when they can travel again. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit sad. Like it kind of, the review came out. It's like, oh, I remember where this all started and we were traveling so much and now we can't, but hopefully next year. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, so, uh, I mean, speaking about, you know, being able to travel again and uh, life, uh, I guess, before COVID, uh, let's go back to your um, PhD experience. Uh, that was at the University of Wollongong, correct? Yes, that's right. Yep, at, um, at IPRI, Intelligent Polymer Research Institute. So what did you um, do for your PhD? Yeah, so I worked with Michael Higgins uh, and obviously Gordon Wallace and the aim of my general uh, PhD project was investigating uh, biomolecular dopants in conductive polymer biomaterials. So we did a lot of atomic force microscopy uh, to investigate kind of down on the nano scale on how different uh, biomolecular dopants, so ones that you might generally find in the body. So for example, hyaluronic acid, chondroitin sulfate, as well as some non-biological uh, dopants, how they affected uh, the structure of polypyrrole conductive polymer and how that might then influence cellular interactions because a lot of people in the field at the time were kind of publishing work saying oh yeah if we put a biomolecular dopant it makes it more biocompatible but without a lot of evidence to kind of say that it was actually the biological component of that dopant was was making that big effect and so we we investigated things like the physical properties because when you start incorporating different dopants you actually change the material properties quite a lot and trying to understand if the cells could really sense these biological components within within the conductive polymer material. And so the kind of answer was for some, yes, and for some, no. And in the end, the physical material properties would have a greater effect than the, uh, the biological components that were kind of presented in the material. So it was really interesting. And we did a lot of, like I said, atomic force microscopy uh, to kind of investigate down on that kind of subcellular level to see see what was going on there. And you stayed on as a research assistant after finishing your PhD? Yeah, yeah, for a little bit uh, while I was looking for postdocs. So we were working on kind of similar stuff like looking at uh, graphene on different uh, polymer substrates and looking at how we could stimulate nerve cells on that. And again, I was kind of more on the material property characterization side of that little project, which was really nice. So when did you sort of realize that you wanted to do a PhD? Was it something that you, you always had a plan to do when you started your, your bachelor or was it something question. that evolved over time? It's a good question. I think um, I remember I chose my bachelor, which was in, it was a bachelor of science in nanotechnology at Curtin University in Perth. And I chose it because I couldn't decide between chemistry and physics because I like them both. And I just kind of, I think I spent the first couple of years just, just happily doing undergraduate courses and not really thinking too much about it. And then I think by the time I reached my third year, I had the marks to do honours. So I was pretty keen to do an honours project. And I think I did, I think it was that summer between third and fourth year, I did a summer internship with one of the researchers there. Um, so they were much more heavy, heavily like inorganic chemistry um, in the in the faculty there. And I did my honours project, which was actually on a, controlling tin oxide nanoparticle growth so it was very different to what I did yeah um, very different uh, and it was it was honestly during my honors I realized that oh it's actually really I like this a lot being in the lab and getting to kind of choose the experiments that I want to do and designing them how I want to do them with my supervisor and I would say it was you know my fourth year that I was really like oh yeah actually I think I do want to do a PhD that'd be pretty cool because I wasn't 
honestly that aware of what career paths were out there with the bachelors. Like I, mm. I knew I didn't want to just go and work as a lab tech. Uh, for example, I didn't want to go like in Western Australia, it's very common to go up and work in the mines as well, especially if you have right. a chemistry degree. It's really get quite easy to get a good job up there, but I wasn't super keen on that. I, I was really drawn to the idea of a PhD because what I, what I truly love, what I really love to do is problem solve and learn new things and the thought of kind of perpetuating, continuing to learn, continuing to kind of do new stuff was very exciting to me. And so I was like, oh, I can keep doing that for another three years. I should do that <laughs> and see how it goes. So, yeah, I would say it was pretty late in the game that I decided to do a PhD, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> It was quite good. I um I, I contacted a few labs around Australia who did nanotechnology, and IPRI was one of them. And yeah, they chatted with Gordon. And they flew me over to check out the labs and and have a chat with people. And they said, oh, you know, we've got PhDs in bionics and in I think at the time it, they might have called it like the solar cell research, like the energy materials research. Like, what are you interested in? I said, oh, bionics. That sounds pretty cool. And that's 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 what happened. I kind of back a few months later to start a PhD project, which I didn't really know much about, except it was going to be <laughs> on biomaterials and bionics with Michael. So yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind, but it was quite yeah. exciting and turned out to be a very good decision. So are you originally from Perth? No, I'm from uh, a town called Esperance, which is about eight hours drive from Perth down okay. on the south west coast. It's beautiful. It's got the best beaches in the world. And that's why when people are like, oh, Wollongong beaches are so cool. Well, they're okay. Esperance is better. But it's very remote. It's very, the water's very cold and there are a lot of sharks. Maybe that's why the beaches are better here because we might have less sharks. But you guys have jellyfish and that weirds me out. Well, that's true. So after spending that time at the University of Wollongong, your first postdoctoral position was overseas. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I um, was at uh, Lin Shiping University uh, with Edwin Yaga. So he is a common, uh, well, he's a, a common collaborator. <laughs> he's a collaborator with, with Ibri quite a lot. I met him quite a few times over my PhD. Um, so he does sabbaticals occasionally in Australia. He would come over. So he does a lot of soft uh, robotics and conductive polymers for actuators. So he's very much on the material side, but he had a project that was about uh, it was in um, collaboration with a researcher at the hospital campus of the University of Lichiping. And it was looking at creating uh, cardiac patch scaffolds uh, using conductive polymers, so the electrical and mechanical stimulus of stem cells to induce cardiac differentiation. And so that kind of caught my eye because I did find working on the more bio aspect of the materials really interesting, but I hadn't had any experience working firsthand with with the cells, it was more about proteins and characterization. And so I was really keen to learn a new skill set and kind of keep moving further into that bio area. So I saw the, I think Jeff Spinks actually emailed it around the group um, that Edwin was looking for a postdoc researcher and I applied and sent in my, my, my details and my uh, answers to the job application questions. And then two weeks later, I, I got it and I was moving to Sweden. So that was <laughs> wow. It happened all very quickly, um, to be honest. But I think Edwin was very keen to get somebody from IPRI because he knew that we had that sure. um, bio side of our materials research. So, yeah. And you spent a few years there? Yeah, so it ended up being just over 
or almost two and a half years, like between two, two and a half years in the end. Um, it was really nice. Like Linköping is more of a college town. So it's not, it's about two hours from Stockholm. Right. Um, we rode our bikes to work every day. It was about 50 minutes ride. It was all very nature and outdoorsy. Um, it was very, it was quite nice. Um, the lab, again, it was, it was a biosensors aspect to the lab as well and bioelectronics. Um, so they were much more, again, materials-based or actuator-based research. And I was kind of the only person working on the bio side. So uh, chatting a lot with the um, collaborators up at the, the hospital was quite useful. So there was a postdoc there, Arturo, who was really great. So he worked with induced pluripotent stem cells, which is what we ended up working with. And so they're a very cool uh, stem cell line, um, very tricky to work with. So mm. he was excellent to work with. And we got a couple of nice papers out of that because uh, we did actually end up creating a scaffold that stimulated induced pluripotent stem cells to generate cardiac markers. So that was really exciting oh, wow. in the end, you know. Yeah, it great. took the two years to kind of develop and get it working but we we did get there and it was it was a really nice little project that we developed there and then uh on to imperial college in london yeah that's right so i knew working on that project kind of really sealed for me that i did like the bio aspect of being more on the bio aspect of biomaterials but what was kind of frustrating me a lot um from my own background and skill set and from reading papers is that the, the field at the time seemed very divided into either it was materials people doing a little bit of biological research or biologists doing a tiny bit of materials research and there wasn't a lot of overlap and there seemed to be this real disconnect in trying to understand how the stem cells were actually kind of transducing the signals from the materials in, in a meaningful way. So you'd get materials people growing cells and they might use like fibroblasts or something simple cell line and do live dead assay, like say whether the cells lived or died after a few days and oh, if they did, that's cool, um, publish. And then you would get biologists doing really cool biology where they're looking at more like gene expression and uh, tracking changes, intracellular changes of the cells and how they're really responding and what mechanisms are undergoing. But they would do it on very simple materials uh, like gelma or um, any of the other kind of more commercial polymer lines that don't really do anything. They're just kind of like a passive material. So I... Uh, was really keen to kind of move more into the understanding how the cells respond to their uh, biomaterial environment mm -hmm. and especially on biomaterials which we can induce changes in so responsive biomaterials like conductive polymers yeah. that you can electrically stimulate for example and i'd approached uh, molly stevens at a conference i'd emailed her before um, the conference uh, i sent her an email and said i was interested in postdoctoral opportunities uh, met up with her at a conference that we were both at and we had a chat and it was quite productive chat. And so she invited me to come and have a lab tour and talk to her uh, postdocs and PhDs within the lab. And from there, I applied to for an Amara Curie fellowship with her, which is a European uh, funding grant for early career researchers. And so it's a two-year funding that pays your salary and gives you a bit of money for research. Uh, but the stipulation is you must move from one country to another to do it. So because I was in Sweden, I could apply for the European style of the grant where I was moving from one European country to another. Right. So the UK was still in Europe. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so I moved from, from Sweden to, Europe, uh, to the UK uh, with that grant. So that was really exciting. It's a really fantastic grant to get. Um, it's kind of, it's quite similar to the DECRA in Australia, right. a little bit shorter. 
Okay. Um, with two years and yes, I moved to Molly's lab and that's where I started doing work on kind of understanding single cell response to electrical stimulus to try to understand the mechanisms that drive stem cell differentiation with electrical stimulus because it's not really well known. It's still not really well known. Um, we made a dent though, I think in starting to understand what was going on and that's a lot of what I'm continuing on here down at RMIT. So how did those research experience differ, you know, sort of starting in uh, Australia um, for your PhD and then, you know, spending a bit of time as a research assistant, then over to Europe, to Sweden, and then to, to London? Were they very different? Um, they were and they weren't, kind of. <laughs> I mean, it was quite interesting that the IPRI and Molly's lab were both, they're both very big labs. Um, so IPRI is obviously like a really big uh, institute where you've got multiple areas of research and quite a lot of researchers in a big kind of self-contained lab and at Molly's lab uh, she had about at the time it was 35 PhDs 35 postdocs which was really big for a UK group and and we pretty much had a big lab at the Imperial College campus to ourselves and we worked in very diverse areas so there was uh Again, they did uh, biosensors, there was nanoparticle research, organic synthesis, uh, hardcore biology, biomaterials, tissue engineering. Um, <laughs> there was uh, yeah, nanomaterial development. So it was a really diverse group of researchers in both, both labs, I'd say, in Wollongong and Imperial, with Imperial kind of a bit more focused on the bio. So it was a really good place to learn new skill sets where I actually learned how to do, my, to do cell culture and learn a lot more about the bio aspect of what I wanted to do but compared to Sweden which was a much smaller lab there was maybe 10 people so right um it was much more like having to go look outside for uh support for the collaborations with the, the biological research and I think definitely Wollongong and Imperial really enforced to me that I prefer to work in very multidisciplinary labs and that's what I try to build my lab up in RMIT because I think it's I think you get a lot more out of it if you have people who are You've got engineers and scientists um, from different aspects. So material scientists, chemical scientists, biological scientists, bioengineers, mechanical engineers. Like if you've got this spread of, of expertise, you can do some really interesting science instead of kind of being locked down one specific niche. It does make it tricky because sometimes you feel like you're just a jack of all trades, master of none. There's <laughs> definitely a feeling I have a lot, but I've, to kind of overcome that, I just foster, try to foster a lot of relationships with people who I think are experts in the field uh, and work with them and collaborate with them. So it's like, oh, I have this idea. I think we could combine this with that. Do you think it'll work? And they're like, oh, it's a bit crazy, but yeah, maybe we could try <laughs> this. And so that's kind of the way I really like to work is, is just surrounding myself with a really diverse, like both diverse in, in like a research background and diverse in cultural background as well, because you get... I feel like if you have people who've learned their, if they've done their education in, in different environments, you do get different problem solving approaches to things. And so it's not just about having a diverse, like, you know, I've got an engineer or a scientist. It's about people who have diverse ways of thinking because perhaps culturally they think about things differently. And so you get, I think, a much better problem solving approach when you've got lots of different viewpoints coming together to a problem, even if it is like a simple engineering problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. So after your time at Imperial College in London, you moved back to Australia and now you're RMIT, uh, University's Vice-Chancellor's Research Fellow. How did that opportunity come about? Um, that was, yeah, so 
we're in, I was in the UK and I was really keen to move back to Australia. The, the plan always was to spend about five years, the early career right. research of phase overseas and get a lot of international experience, which worked out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so as I think it was, it was actually four years ago, uh, which I remember because of certain <laughs> world events, um, I was in the cusp of preparing uh, job interview slides and seminar for a position I didn't get, but it was back in Melbourne. So I was flown back to Melbourne for that. That was my first job interview back in Australia. So over 18 months, I probably applied for four uh, independent research positions. So not postdocs, uh, not prim even primary lecturing positions, but ones where I would be primarily research and have my own lab. And so there's not a lot of those jobs around, mm. unfortunately, at the moment. Um, and I also had applied for a DECRA in that time. And so those four jobs and the DECRA, I got absolutely slammed in the DECRA. I don't think I've ever had a lower ranked grant in my life. <laughs> they hated me. They, oh, it was terrible. Oh, so no. this thing, if you write a grant and you get absolutely slammed, don't worry. Because uh, the next year I applied um, after I actually got the position at RMIT and my my CV had not changed at all. The project had changed and mm. the institute that I applied with had changed, but I had not changed. And I went from being ranked in the bottom 10% to being ranked in the top 10%. I still didn't get the DECRA, but <laughs> it was amazing the difference. Yeah, wow. Resilience. In response to me. So I was like, oh, well, at least I feel a bit better now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I looked, applied for these four jobs and I got interviews for three and I got one of them. So the RMIT, they didn't uh, fly a server, but it was all uh, online. Uh, so Skype interview, which was about 4 a.m. in the morning, which was delightful. And at the time I was in my first trimester uh, with my first kid. And so it was really fun waking up um, <laughs> with morning sickness to sell myself to a panel of people over video, but oh, apparently wow, I did a very yeah. good job. So there was, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that worked out. Um, yeah, so it was the vice chancellor's fellowships. They're really nice. They're a four-year fellowship um, with research money uh, allocated for every year. So there's a lot of support for us to develop our research platforms within the research priorities of the university. And there's a lot of support uh, to help you kind of set yourself up and reach out and connect with other people across the university. So very trying to encourage a lot of that cross-discipline research as well, um, which is really nice. And so, so far it was going really great uh, for the first year and then COVID hit. So that was <laughs> put a damper on things, but I'm very, I feel very, privilege that I've got a position that I've still got a couple of years left to go. I'm not freaking out about what I'm going to do afterwards. Um, the four-year fellowship is well, sh assuming that I perform up to task, I will be offered a continuing position. So that's a really nice bit of security to have uh, in the current like uh, research climate. And yeah. um, to follow on from that, the un second unsuccessful DECRA, I take, took that research, the science from that project, I turned it into a discovery project uh, and popped on uh, collaborator Kate Fox, who's in engineering here at RMIT, and we were successful. So it was my first time applying for a discovery project. I was a level, I'm level B currently. Um, so pretty junior, and it was just Kate on it as well, who's, she's a level D, so an associate professor. And it was my first time applying for a discovery project and I was successful and I think. Great. Sometimes I'm like, wow, <laughs> I don't really know how that happens. So, um, <laughs> You know, like you can be, you know, some grants will fall, fall through and you won't get them and sometimes they'll pop up when you least expect it because I just kind of turned it into a discovery with the idea of, oh, this will be a good learning experience. I'll, 
I'll be able to see the comments and, and make it better next year. We'll just, I'll just pop it in for now and see what happens. And we actually got it. So that was, that was amazing. That's really kind of cemented a lot of the research that I'm trying to do at RMIT. Yeah. So, I mean, you sort of touched on the p- position there, but I guess what's the main focus of your uh, research in that position? Yeah. So um, I'm trying, well, my research group focuses on developing uh, external platforms for stem cell stimulus. So we're developing, uh, part of it is engineering new devices to externally stimulate stem cells. So that could be, it is electrical and or mechanical stimulus. So stretch and strain. Uh, Electrical, we do field and direct stimulation like bioelectrodes. And I also do a bit of collaboration with people who have other external stimulus platforms such as surface wave acoustics with Professor Leslie Yeo, who's at RMIT, um, and some other um, 2D material stimulus as well with some people at University of Melbourne that we've just uh, started looking at. And the idea is that we want to investigate how stem cells respond to these external stimulus that are delivered, delivered kind of through like energy stimulation. So I said electrical stimulation or applying a stress or a strain. The mechanical stimulus is a bit better understood, but we want to see how that works in collaboration with electrical stimulus because we're quite interested to see how that goes. And the idea is uh, basically to see if we can use this electrical or external stimulus to drive specific stem cell differentiation with the idea that we can build some platforms for individual tissue engineering therapy. So the idea that you could take stem cells from a patient, treat them, condition them with our stimulus, that will direct them towards the targeted tissue type, which might, for example, be bone, it might be muscle, it might be cardiac uh, tissue, depending on what that patient needs. Condition the cells, train the cells to grow into that cell type, and then collect the cells and either implant them back into the, the patient or implant them into some kind of tissue engineering scaffold to be implanted back you know that kind of that's yeah. down the track like how we get it back into the patient that's not yeah, so yeah, much sure. what we're doing but we're trying to see if we can kind of have some really understand how these different external stimuli drive stem cell behavior and how we can harness that to treat patients on an individual level because stem cells respond really differently depending on where they come from so a person who's probably from an older demographic their stem cells behave very differently to a young person um, for example. And so it's like, well, how do the stem cells like from different donors respond? That's the first question that we're asking. And can we come up with kind of global effects, like things that doesn't matter where that stem cell comes from, we can definitely get them to behave a certain way, or is this something that we're going to have to tailor patient to patient? And so part of understanding how we can tailor that, we're developing these stimulation platforms that are high throughput so that we can test lots of different stimulation parameters within a single experiment and try to understand what's going on. Uh, sounds really exciting. <laughs> I think so. And I really want to get in the lab and yeah, get I it bet. going. We've been developing um, some prototypes throughout the year. That's mostly what we've been doing in the lockdown. Um, so I've had an engineering capstone student who's done a lot of uh, design work in SolidWorks and using um, Comsol for simulations. And then I've got, we've got a master's student as well who actually has a 3D printer at home. So he's been oh, cool. printing some devices to, like, to start testing out. So we've kind of got a couple of prototypes to get going with. Um, um, but the idea is that we can upscale it hopefully in the next few months to full scaled uh, prototypes with that 48 wells instead of the eight that we've started with um, and you know really get cracking 
cracking on this because the high throughput research area in general in science is, is really fascinating. Like mm. starting to move away from that slow kind of manual labor that comes a lot hand in hand with biological science. The idea that we can start generating a lot of outputs over short periods of time and then using also our um, computational analysis, so automated computational analysis to tell us what's going on rather than you know, manually looking at each cell or doing really long-term differentiation. If we can shorten that a lot by having algorithms or even machine learning to kind of identify which, which simulations are having an effect and which aren't, is really exciting. There's a lot of fantastic work being done in the high throughput platform area in general across biology. The moment there's some really great stuff being done with like organoid uh, development, like creating high throughput platforms for organoids for looking at drug screening, for example. It's like really cool stuff. Yeah. So I'm like, why can't we apply it to electrical stimulus? <laughs> why not? Why not? And so that was my question. Someone said, oh, we can. I said, great, let's do it. <laughs> so uh, something I've continued to ask everyone on the podcast, mm-hmm. and it might be a little bit hard for you to answer because of the circumstances down in Melbourne, but is there a, maybe a morning routine or it doesn't necessarily have to be a morning routine, but maybe something that you sort of do every day that helps you um, approach your day and um, approach your work? Um, definitely coffee is up there. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Uh, honestly, the work from home routine at the moment is driving my toddler into daycare, coming home and walking to get a coffee from the coffee shop around the corner and just having a bit of a walk outside. It's been the start of the routine. Um, but I would say, honestly, this year working from home has also really helped me sort out my online organizational skills um, so I had started to set it up uh, prior to the pandemic but now it's it's nice like I use uh, OneNote for example so our RMIT uses um, the Microsoft Office kind mm-hmm. of suite of programs and so we've got OneNote which is really handy because now I've got uh, things like all my student plans and research projects uh, it's easy for me and my students to see and monitor um, so I have to-do lists and we've got our, uh, where we're going with our projects and where we're at and we have teams where we discuss and can keep in touch uh, with everything that's going on, even though we can't be seeing each other in person, um, which helps a lot. So, and then using SharePoint and things and being organized about everything that we've got in the lab. So I think I'm much, I'm very much a list maker. So I'd say that's primarily the way that I kind of start my day is checking out what my, my list says for the month. And then it's usually categorized into priority and I get to it, I guess, that way. Because otherwise you feel a bit aimless when you're working from home. So definitely need a bit of structure and, and uh, go-to points. De- definitely. Uh, and, and just to wrap up the podcast, I was wondering if you might be able to offer any advice to uh, maybe current PhD students um, or those who are maybe thinking about embarking on a PhD. In this current climate, it's, it's, it's tricky because my number one advice to a PhD students is make sure that you, you travel. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's definitely like networking is a big part of, of science and it's not, it's not a bad part. Like I, I'm definitely an introvert. I'm someone who I'm totally fine chatting with people, going to a conference, talking, but then I need to go and sit in a quiet room for a little while afterwards. Mm. Uh, but you know, going to conferences, uh, reaching out to, especially if you're coming to the end of the PhD and you want to do a postdoc, 
look at the labs who are doing work that you think is exciting and reach out to those professors email them if especially if you can meet up with them at a conference again it's tricky right now but um who knows maybe next year we can start doing that again or they may even be quite keen to have a chat over over zoom or, or skype or whatever video software that you prefer to use <laughs> um and reaching out in, in a way that shows that you really, you are specifically interested in their, in their lab, um, especially coming out to the end of the PhD as well, thinking about where you might want to go. So I don't, I often tell PhD students, like you're really not limited to what you did your PhD in. Like you should use your postdoc time as, as time to kind of reach out and branch out to other skill sets and other projects that you might be interested in. Cause I went from, cause I said like a conductive polymer biomaterials and electrochemistry to, tissue engineering, like actually doing a cell culture. So it's, and I've never done a, taken a biology class in my life. So <laughs> it's just about <laughs> thinking about what skill sets you want to lose, what, what skill sets you want to use and learn and targeting groups that do that. Um, and definitely it's the same, I'd give the same advice to someone looking for a postdoc and a PhD is choose your supervisor, not the project, because you can change a project you don't like. You can always rejig it. You can always refocus it. <laughs> it's a lot more difficult if you don't mesh all the supervisor. It's a lot more difficult if you just don't have the same communication um, style with your supervisor or you just don't get along or maybe they're not as present or they're not as flexible as you'd hoped. So even if the project looks amazing, like, oh my God, I love it so much, but I'm not getting a great vibe from the prof. Don't, don't go with it. You know, if you, if you find a good supervisor, then usually they can help you tailor the project to what you're interested in and what you want to learn. Um, and definitely not, sh I mean, shop around is a funny word. Like obviously <laughs> in this research climate, we're all like desperate to get positions and move on, but you can be a little picky. You can be a little picky and, and really think about what's best for you and what you want to do uh, with your PhD, with your postdoc. And um, I, I chat a lot with other ECRs and, and, colleagues from especially from imperial we're all moving kind of into the stage of independent researchers and i remember i took after my very first job interview the one which happened four years ago i i came back and i obviously didn't get the position but it was such a really good learning experience it was like kind of the first time i really had to sit down and think about what i wanted to do like i could think about a lot of interesting research projects but i couldn't conceptualize what i wanted my lab to look like and you know, a five-year plan for my lab and, you know, what would my PhD projects look like? And what, if I had a postdoc, what would they be doing? And it was so hard thinking about that when you are a postdoc. <laughs> and then, but that kind of really triggered in me that I had to think about that. And, and I sat down, it probably took me six months to really develop and uh, solidify where I wanted to go. And okay, this is what my lab looks like. This is what it'll be. And even then it changed a lot after I got to RMIT and learned more about what facilities they had and the expertise around me. And so now I kind of look down, I'm like, oh, actually, you know, I could list off five or six PhD projects off the top of my head if I had the students to do it. Yeah. You know, and so it's, it's sitting down and thinking about where you want to be is really hard, but it's really worth it. And you don't have to think five years ahead. Like even if it's just like oh, in the next couple of years, I'd really love to learn how to do this technique or how to kind of, be an expert in this part of the field and kind of push yourself towards that rather than just be like, Oh, well, I guess I'll, I've got this postdoc's kind of the same as what I did before, but oh, it's the first one. I better just take that and I'll see what happens. 
you know, you can take time to really think about what's going to benefit you and your career and where do you want to go? And even if that's not academia, like, you know, where can I work that's going to start introducing me to industry links? Where can I yeah. work where I'm going to understand how to run a startup? Like for the very first time in my life, I'm getting involved with uh, writing up some IP applications. I'm like, oh. it might not go up. I just need to figure out how to do this because I've Great. never done it before. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I guess be your own advocate and it's definitely worth the time to do a bit of self-reflection and, and think about what, what's going to benefit you. Be a bit selfish. What's going to benefit you? Have a really good think about it. And if you don't know, that's also totally fine because we don't always know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fantastic advice. Um, be your advocate. I like that. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Um, thanks so much for your time, Amy. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. This yeah, morning. thanks, Sam. Thanks for inviting me on. It's always good to waffle on about what I, what I get up to. So it's great. Thanks for listening to the ACES podcast. For more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts. You can also find more information about ACES on our website, electromaterials.edu. There you'll find links to our various social media platforms. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Samuel Finlay. Until next time, thanks for listening.